0: Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put internally at your disposal. Here we go. Man, you'd think we've been at this for a while,
1: all these technical
0: difficulties.
1: Mm. Well, we should at least pray. We should. I can pray. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Jesus, we give you this time. Uh, thank you for your incarnation um, coming to be with us. And just let us live in that reality um, today that you've chosen us, that you want to be with us. And uh, we pray that some somehow your providence and grace may may help these words shared uh, reach someone else with with your love. So angels and saints, come to our aid, especially a little flower. Amen. Amen. Father and Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.
0: Amen to your amen. Amen. So how's it going, lads?
1: Doing well over here. What about you, Rob? Doing good. Ready for Christmas. I love Christmas. It's great. We're ready to go. Christmas is great. It is. I watched um,
0: I watched a thing on Netflix the other night about Home Alone and the making of Home Alone. Hmm. It was very interesting. Do you know much about uh, John Hughes, the filmmaker who made a lot of famous movies in the late 80s, early 90s? No. No. He made like Breakfast Club, um, Ferris Bueller, Uncle Buck. 16 Candles, a lot of like the teen mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And he, he had an idea. Macaulay Culkin was in Uncle Buck and he thought he was a funny kid. And he had an idea for a, a movie just with a kid, uh, which was not really done at the time. And uh, he was also a writing legend. He would write like a script a week. and So he pumped out Home Alone in like a few hours or whatever, maybe two two days of writing.
2: Wow. That's yeah. crazy.
0: And then it was, it had all this drama of it almost didn't get made. And, uh, it was actually filmed in my hometown. When Edka, it, he, he filmed a lot of his stuff in Chicago cause he liked to be away from the studio culture and stuff in LA and whatnot. And, um, they used the old Nutria West for all the sets and stuff. That was all the production offices were in this high school abandoned high school and uh remember the last scene where they you know the wet bandits flood all the houses yeah. you've seen the movie right
1: yeah, yeah oh yeah
0: yeah uh and Michael culkin is walking through that basement that's all flooded and the water's cascading down the stairs remember that mm-hmm. if you say that is was it... your house then i'm gonna freak <laughs> no they built they built that set in the pool in an empty pool because they're like the sec- the set is going to leak and all the other <laughs> sets had been had been made in the gym. And so they just just hosed this uh this staircase until it flooded the flooded the fake basement and then it just all drained out into the pool. I thought that was interesting. And it made me feel good cuz that scene has always made me feel anxious that someone's basement got ruined. Um
2: just for the sake of a
0: movie. Yeah. But it was also interesting, like all the they had all the stunt men, and it was like really. They said while they were filming it, you know how you're just laughing your head off as the, as the crooks are getting beat up by the kid, like the iron is falling on his face, and he, <laughs> they're getting those paint cans whipped at him and stuff. They said that as they were filming it, like everyone, including the director, just closed their eyes when they did the stunts. <laughs> And there was no laughter on the set. It was all just this really somber, like, are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> and then they looked at it later and they're like, yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> but at the time, they were just worried they were going to break bones. And... No but way. these men these are insane because they're all like Joe Pesci's stuntmen. Uh, You know, they're always like falling, falling down the stairs and things like that. But it's all in a super dramatic, unrealistic way where they catch like Four feet of air, and then lands <laughs> straight on their back. Uh, he's like, "I love it. I love doing it. I live. I live for it." It's wow, funny. Wow, I think I, think I have movies
2: that movies that made us or something like that. Hmm. I I think I did a little little drive by to to see that house. Is I I can't remember all the suburbs in Chicago, but is it somewhat close to Evanston?
0: Yeah, Uh, if you go up the lake from Chicago, it goes Evanston, we'll meet Winnetka. Winnetka is where I'm from.
2: Is there another house in Evanston that was famously a part of a movie? Mm, Perhaps. No. Well, I know we went by, Rob, were you with us when we went by the Ferris Bueller house?
1: I don't think so. The one, Cameron's
2: house with the Ferrari? Yeah, with the the glass house in the woods. Is
0: that somewhere in the suburbs?
2: Yeah, yeah. Stop by and saw that one. But I, I think I did go and see that other Home Alone house, the, the one that you're talking about. Just It's like located in a normal suburb. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Right. Do people they, live they, there?
0: That's what they did. They just drove around the suburbs until they found a house that was like, they said they had to make it, because the house is, is, like, is like a character in the movie. You know, he's home alone and you have to the two challenges were a you had to make it feel like the parents left behind a kid, but they're not bad people. You know, like you had to still mm. like the parents mm. um, and you had to make the home feel like worth fighting for, you know, mm. it had to have this like really warm, homey, classic feel. And it really does from the outside. It looks like a. It just looks like a Norman Rockwell painting. Hmm. Um. But then all the inside, because they said you can't, you can't get a, f- a whole film crew and like set up all their stuff during winter, either in or outside that house. So then, right? They just really did all the exterior shots there.
2: Wow. Oh, very right, interesting. Right, yeah. yeah. How, how does how does somebody come to the realization that like that's the two things that he needed in that movie? Who knows,
0: dude? Those people are geniuses.
2: I would never yeah. guess that. I <laughs> To make the house worth fighting for and mm-hmm. the parents still likable after they forget their children. Mm-hmm. Ha- wow. Well,
0: it's cool. An example of this where something slight could change the entire meaning of a movie, even though it's the same exact script and all that stuff, is do you ever see the movie Cable Guy? Jim Carrey?
1: Yeah a long time ago. Super,
0: super weird kind of upsetting movie where he's a stalker weirdo. Yeah. Um, Typical weird Jim Carrey humor. But Chris Farley was originally supposed to be the cable guy. Interesting. Did you know that? No. No. It was going to be like, it was going to be an entirely different movie, you know, where he's just kind of a bumbling, nice guy that's like, goes too far, you know, whereas Jim Carrey is this kind of weird... You know, like how he's the Grinch. He's just this kind of quasi-evil, sinister, but also funny guy, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I think most people, I would have liked the movie better if it were Chris Farley, I think.
2: I I always thought that was a part of a different genre of movie. It was like this dark, dark humor. Yeah, Yeah. which I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me, but... But I was thinking about the the subtle difference between, uh, and I don't know what makes this difference real, but you know, some you, know, you got the the man courting the lady, and um, like on one hand, him you know throwing rocks at the window to sing her a song, if she approves, it's very cute and adorable and uh, <laughs> yeah, like very endearing. But <laughs>
0: if not, then <laughs>
2: if, I'm calling if there's, the cops. if there's if there's that little piece missing there, it's. Uh, yeah. It's almost B and E right there. Like, you get the trespassing violation and restraining well, you've orders?
0: Seen, you've seen the uh, the trailer for The Shining, where they make it into like a a coming of age summer comedy. Mm-mm. They just change the music and, and the narration, but it's the same. All the scenes from The Shining. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so well. It's an old video. Wow. It's have you? Uh, I remember watching Dumb and Dumber one time with Mano. And have you guys ever seen the the deleted scenes from Dumb and Dumber? No. There's one in particular when they're at the... Oh, gosh. It's when they're in like the... Yeah, they, they stay at a hotel at one point and stay in like a little hot tub. It's like the real classy place or something um, that they call it. Yeah. But there's this extra scene and I don't remember all that. I'd never seen it before, but Mano like had had seen it and was saying like i'd say he's a dumb and dumber connoisseur yeah big time as a compliment i mean that Mm -hmm. um (laughs) but it does this scene totally they're kind of like peeping toms in in the scene and it like it totally changes the whole movie like this one minute of scene because it just totally makes them creeps Mm. um and there's like nothing endearing about them in in the scene um it's just not okay and they didn't put it in the movie but i remember um we watched it one night and he was talking about it so then we we watched that particular scene and like holy cow that does that literally cutting that one minute changed the entirety of of the movie i've never really seen yeah i'm sure there's other examples of it, but it's very, very interesting. I remember when I was when I was a kid, we used to watch The Simpsons
0: very faithfully, all the new episodes on Sunday nights as a family. And there was a time when Homer became, you know, how he has that relationship with Flanders, that he hates him, you know, and he like takes his stuff and Homer's just this really inconsiderate, insensitive guy who's pretty selfish, but He's also kind of a friendly idiot, you know, he's just an oaf who doesn't really know what he's doing. And that's part of why he's inconsiderate is just because he's not smart. So you still like him because he's funny. Um, And there was some scene where he, uh, (laughs) he'd done something to ruin Flanders's yard or something like that. And (laughs) then Flanders goes, but Homer, did you have to salt the earth? And uh, like, it was just this extra joke. But I remember all of us were kind of like, oh, that's mean. You know, like it it was just a bridge too far where all of a sudden Homer (laughs) was not funny anymore. He was just cruel, you know, like it would have been funny that he had done this thing to ruin it because he just didn't know what he was doing or something like that. Or he was so busy doing his own thing that he just inconsiderately ruined Flanders' yard, but the the intent, like mm-hmm. you can't salt the earth without meaning to senselessly ruin someone's stuff, you know. It's mm. kind of like um Michael Scott, you know, how like he, he has to have these moments where you just love him. Like when he goes to see Pam's art, you know, and he just right. loves her art. Mm. And he's like, That's our building <laughs> and we sell paper. There are just these little moments in that show where you don't hate him you know even though he's so he's so unlikable otherwise as a boss then he has those moments like the day that jim has to take over and he, he screws everything up by trying to make everybody's birthday on the same day and <laughs> do you remember that episode michael comes back from his survivor man thing <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> oh did you try to do everybody's birthday on the same day yeah, yeah it's rookie mistake <laughs> and you, all of a sudden you feel like <laughs> this warmth from him man characters it's it's so wild they don't even exist but it is important that we like them
1: Mm. Mm. man we don't have to there could be something else to go down there but for when you were talking about the the stunt guys from um home alone have you guys seen the movie it's what's it called once upon a time in hollywood with brad pitt and dicaprio yeah, I have seen it. Mm-mm. It's a Tarantino uh, flick. It's a, yeah, it's one of the newer. Yeah, I pretty much stay away from Tarantino. I, I like Tarantino. I like He did Inglorious Bastards, didn't he? Yeah, I've seen mm-hmm. parts of that. I like that movie. Um, anyway, this one, it's just interesting. Brad Pitt won the Academy Award for uh, Best Supporting Actor in it. And in his speech, I remember watching his speech. Um, it's very short. It's got like some political stuff at the beginning. But overall, I thought it was pretty darn pretty darn good, like concise and seemed pretty pretty genuine. Um, and, but he talked about the character, I can't remember the character's name, that he won the Academy Award for playing. And I still remember he talked about like this guy, this guy's kind of ethos towards life. Because he, the character in the movie is a stuntman for DiCaprio. Um, so he's just kind of this sidekick guy throughout the whole movie. And he talks about in it that his kind of whole ethos towards life was that he, he assumed, what, I can't remember how he words it, but like he assumes the worst about people, but he looks for the best. And... Hmm thought like man that's a really actually kind of like accurate and kind of cool way to see the world because i remember thinking it's a very like it's very like masculine kind of caring character in the movie in a weird way i don't know there's some real depth to it i i um i thought it was cool that he won the academy award for it anyway after seeing the movie which is it's got it's classic tarantino there's some scenes that you're just like what just happened (laughs) um (laughs) But I just thought that was like, um, it it was just interesting. That's a, it's kind of a, I think, insightful way to, to walk through the world of like eyes wide open, um, and certainly not being naive whatsoever, but there's just like this kind of like genuine goodness to him as well. I don't know. Did Mm -hmm. you, would you agree after seeing the movie Metz?
2: yeah yeah and i i think um yeah he is he's this tough figure he's kind of too cool for school and and you know almost too cool for everything but but he still ends up playing this kind of protector he's still a little bit of a goofball and and does some some silly stuff here and there but um yeah i would definitely agree with that which can you say the phrase again assume the worst but keep I your think, eyes open for the best.
1: No, I think he said because he he was talking about the character that he played, and I think he said he assumes the worst about people but looks for the best. Okay,
2: okay, yeah. Well, it does get at a at a good question that, um, yeah. I I mean, I guess I have as a priest, but more more broadly speaking, just as a person is. Um, how can you simultaneously have a, um, a not just a positive outlook on 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 life and towards people, but how can you be a realist, not be taken advantage of, but then also, um, like recognize the potential and the goodness of other people, um, because, yeah, I've I've definitely had some experiences here at the parish where I think people have uh taken kindness and well what's the phrase you know they you're assuming my like kindness is weakness and they kind of take advantage of it um so I, I there's something realistic about that that uh also i mean it's grounded in reality where he's yeah he's trying to be have his eyes open to the good but then also be protected yeah and I don't know what's the best way to do that, but that's definitely a question that I have.
0: Yeah. I think part of me bristles at the idea because it kind of sounds like hope for the best, prepare for the worst, um, which I'm a little prejudiced against. Ever since uh, my brother, uh, when their daughter was born with a heart defect and they were in the children's hospital for a couple of years, really in and out. And it was really touch and go and all these heart surgeries and stuff. Um, and then got to be friends with a lot of couples with kids with the same thing. And some of the kids died and got heart transplants and even then still died. And thank God my, my niece is 11 and she's doing great. Um, but I remember we've said a lot of heart-to-hearts and not going too much into it, like some people had said something to that effect, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And he's like, what does that even mean? How do you prepare for the worst? And I, this is a, a, a distinct idea from assuming the best about people look, or assuming the worst and looking for the best. But it's the same kind of sounding like hedge your bets sort of thing, you know, like uh, think this way but act this way you know as a kind of safety valve um and he's like i I just don't i don't know what it looks like to uh assume like just act as if something terrible is going to happen or like try to like get myself ready for that because it's going to tear my heart out if something happens that i don't want to happen it's going to tear my heart out and there's no like oh as long as i'm like mentally prepared it won't hurt as bad you know um and maybe there's something there in that, in terms of interpersonal relationships. Um, like assuming the worst about people just kind of protects you from, like you're saying, Mike with being taken advantage of or, or whatever. Um, I do think that there's some, there's some wisdom there. And I think as I've matured <laughs> poco a poco um, that I I am better at that. Like there's an integrity about it to me in that phrase, like, I'm just not going to go into the world naively, you know, like Jesus, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down freely. You know, there's, there's an integrity. There's a total intentionality about the way he loves people. He's not, there's no bitterness in it, even as he's being nailed to the cross because he, it's all an act of love and gift. And none of it is like, ugh, I just let you guys trample all over me, you know? Hmm. Because he knows, isn't there that line? I know he knew what was in man. He trusted himself to know him because he knew what was in the heart of man.
2: Yeah. Um, it's something like that. It's a cool line. Yeah. Maybe, I can't maybe it's like it's nobody, nobody had to explain the hearts of man to him. Right. Yeah. Something to that effect.
0: But what it also makes me think of is this book I just started to read the other night Thomas Soul, A Conflict of Visions. It's about Whoa. ideological, political stuff. Have you ever heard of it? No, I've I've heard of Thomas
2: Sowell. I haven't I haven't read that book though.
0: So all I've read is the intro, but he lays out his basic thesis, which is that all like practical conflict in terms of um, policy, politics, stuff like that, is based in a well, not all, but you know, you, as long as you have the same vision of like what the human person is like and what a society is for, what laws are for. You can argue the practice of like this will this will do that better this will create a more just society but if you're if you have a different vision about what a just society is or what laws are for then you talk past each other because you know like the practical difference mike you still there oh man oh no
1: dang it let's just keep keep going maybe he'll catch in he'll he'll cut back in Um, I do kind of want him to hear this because this is going to be such gold. Yeah, man, it's. I definitely he might not make it if he doesn't hear it. You're right. You're right. Give him. It's hard to explain how
0: much harder it is to edit when this happens. Dang, dude. Uh, I got a line. All right. Hey, dude all right um yeah so he his basic thesis is that there are um two overarching visions one is the constrained vision and the unconstrained vision and in short the constrained vision is that um human beings are mm, i don't want to use the word irredeemably but sort of like essentially selfish um that it's it's really impossible for them like he uses the example of a person in England or this was one of the philosophers maybe uh Adam Smith or or Hobbes or something said that if a man in England hears of a million people dying in an earthquake in China he will certainly feel bad and and uh like feel the the sadness of the tragedy of all of that human loss but then he'll go to sleep well and think about his breakfast the next day and but if he were to cut off his pinky making a chair uh he would lose sleep you know he would he would think man i lost the tip of my finger and i'll never get it back you know um like that's a much more because of the proximity because he, he just feels it much more acutely and he just says that's that's part of being human is that we we tend to value more the things that are close to us that belong to us our family our close interpersonal relationships our own possessions and property and our bodily integrity and stuff like that is just our of values is that that stuff that's closer to me is more important um and there are visions there's there's a way of ordering society where you, you just kind of take that for granted that people tend to be selfish not not good or bad you know like you can you can still be a generous person you can you can practice virtue but you can't change that about us you know what i mean and then the unconstrained vision is that no like you can correct that in man and he can it's possible to make him feel the loss of people he's never met or never will meet um, as acutely as he feels his own pinky being cut off you know and that's sort of like the rousseau thing that that we are naturally supposed to be that way, perfectly generous and, um, and compassionate towards all people, um, and that we've just been corrupted by bad influences and, and things like that. Um, which to me is sort of like assume the worst about people, but look for the best, you know, like the, that's the constrained vision that, you know, it's just realistic, like people tend to look out for number one but that doesn't mean that
1: they're bad well, You know what also, i mean it reminds and i'm reading peterson right now too so i'm relating a lot of this stuff to i don't know, just different insights from from him hey mike sorry to interrupt can we just do like
0: a uh one two three hey so i can it makes it easier for me to put this uh piece of audio back in the right spot Might be there.
2: Are you saying we all say hey at the same time?
0: Yeah, I'll do one, two, three. One, two, three, hey. Uh, Hey.
1: Okay. (laughs) All right, go ahead, Rob. We good? Yeah. Well, I mean, his, his whole thing is that the world and life is really, really hard. And we should probably talk about that more. And human beings have an incredible capacity for good and generosity and self sacrifice. And the vast majority of the time, they tend that way. But it's the same person that is very generous and um, like trustworthy and good. It's the same person that also has like the capacity for immense evil. And if you don't understand that about yourself, you probably don't understand yourself very well. And he's just got interesting stuff there of like, he talks about like the psychological effect that one of the most devastating things that very, very few people can handle is if you, if, if you combine like devastation and deceit. So for the most part, people are strong enough to handle like incredibly hard things like terminal illnesses and um you know kind of like random just bad things that happen unlucky things that are just like part of life but if you combine if you combine that with deceit or like the capacity for human beings to hurt each other that is what will typically just like wreck almost anyone um and so i don't know it's just there i think there is some wisdom to to that of yeah I mean, that's that's just true i mean that's that's why like we shouldn't um become numb to the language of like a fallen world and how profound that is like that actually has it right of it's the same people that um, yeah can can live as saints like they also in this life will always have the capacity for like very real evil um in them which is kind of scary but i think that like at least to me honestly like not to just like bring it right around to christmas in a couple days but um like that does to me make like just thinking and meditating on the incarnation um like way more potent and like actually like personal and profound than um than thinking about much else well you know here's the
0: thing is i think in in the soul thing you were talking about jordan peterson just now is that right his thing about well, yeah i said i've been reading him and that's i mean that was his i yeah um I think with soul, at least the way I understand it, is that it's he's not really even talking about the fall necessarily. Um, that that's the primary thing about the constrained vision is that we're fallen or that we're bad. No, no, no. And he that, he
1: wouldn't. I I put that in there of like that's yeah. how that's how I'm relating it while reading. I hear it. you. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. But like, what's what I think is the the third way, um, is the is the way of the incarnation, like you brought up, um, which is that god who does love a million people in a different country just as much as he loves one person in england because he loves everyone infinitely with a personal love we can't do that because we're not god we're we are we we have human loves uh which are you know formed by experience and affection and time spent with people and things like that like it just like we tend to love people more who have these sort of natural connection to us you have your you have your kind of circles you know yourself your family your community your nation the world you know and there's like that hierarchy of of loves which is neither good nor bad it just is you know and the way that jesus comes into the world is in that thick network of relationships and and he has a mother and an earthly father and but he, he sort of like puts the divine compassion and infinite love into the context of those particular human loves, you know. So Mary watching Jesus die on the cross is a totally different experience than a Roman soldier or even me and you because she breastfed fed this kid. You know, she raised him, taught him to read, uh, you know, has been with him for 33 years and like all of that natural love which binds a mother to a son is there but it's also ripped open by the the divine compassion that's on the cross dying for all of us you know so i i think it um i I like it because it's it it makes sense of the way that i think catholics think or are supposed to think which is that are those natural bonds are not good or bad like we shouldn't want to elevate our nature to something that isn't our nature you know like the it's the non-competitive transcendence of god that when christ really takes hold of you and you start to feel with him um it's always with this analogy he's like we you are brothers and sisters you are one body you know you're as integral the the church in in vietnam or singapore or russia is is like every member of that church is, is is as connected to you as your cells are connected to each other in your own body, you know. Um, even though you don't feel that, you know, like you he uses like the you know how the way you feel about yourself, that's how that's how much when that person hurts, you should hurt. You know, when you're connected to the body of Christ through the Eucharist, the sacraments, the spirit. Um and it's not upending like don't love your family. Although he does say you have to hate your mother and father in order to follow me. But Uh, I think that's a rhetorical device that like we are so we tend to be possessive about these relationships, but really they should open us up to a a wider love, but not negate those loves, but like use those as a, a window in, you know, a sacrament of the way that God feels about every single one of us. You are my children. You know, you know how you feel about your children. You wouldn't give them a rock if they asked for an egg. How much more would your father give you the spirit if you asked for it? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? That that difference is subtle, but it's it's kind of important. It's not like the fact that we love our parents more than strangers isn't the fall. It's just life. Right, it's but yeah, it it can become idolatry, which is what Jesus comes to to open open it up. He's like that stuff. Those feelings you have were always supposed to be um
2: signals to you to look higher. You know. Yeah. Well, that's one thing that I appreciate about Peterson that. Um, I, I don't think I really had like a, a good conceptualization of this, but he has always, I've always appreciated how he um, c- takes, you know, he's an evolutionary biologist. And so the way that we live right now in the 21st century are much different than anybody has ever lived ever in human history. And we kind of assume that this is the norm. And so then everything else needs to conform to this norm. But then him, You know, taking it back to some of our, you know, just like older days. I mean, even, you know, he looks at 200 years as if it's nothing essentially as an evolutionary biologist, but, uh, all of those very human connections and human relationships is it's, it would have been just what's in your closest proximity. What's, what's most near and dear to you. And that that's not an abnormal thing. That's the normal starting point. And you know, I, I think of that line from, I think it's uh, Dostoevsky talks about man's capacity uh, to hate the person in front of him, but to love humanity in general. Mm-hmm. I've about this before, um, but that the real invitation is to love the human in front of us, which through that particular love is the thing that opens us up to the general love of humanity. And uh, honestly, like I, I think we get that backwards. Uh, a lot of times mm-hmm. I, I love humanity in general, but each individual, you know, with the particular instance of love in front of me, I can't, I don't like them. <laughs> so I, I love humanity, but these people are driving me nuts. You know, I,
0: I think that that's the, the thing that Peterson hit on the head that speaks to so many people is like, you, you want the world to be a better place, go make a difference. Everybody's been telling you that since you were a kid, but your bed isn't made. Like you you have to start with yourself and with the small things to make the world a more ordered
2: place. And and to your point, like, I don't think we, I don't think we have the natural capacity to love, to properly love people who are, you know, a thousand miles away, like a population of even a a million people to, to feel the, the compassion and love and mercy for those people for those other people that we don't know, that we'll never know, that we'll never meet. It's not possible on a natural level. Like you can't just foster that feeling. You can't just foster that compassion. But what Christ does when he takes the the general divine compassion and enters it into the particular, you know, in, in, enters it into creation in a specific time and in a specific place In a particular home with a mom, with a dad, uh, he takes this overarching, you know, meta love, but he brings it into the world. And then what I think that does is that gives us the capacity in the incarnation with Jesus that through our particular loves, we can actually enter into the divine love. And so, you know, you're talking about the connection between the body of Christ as. That's the only way that that actually authentically happens is through loving Christ who then takes us you know because he entered into the particularity he can take our particularity and bring it into the divine into the sacred heart into the 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 sweet divine life of God but other than that like I have no capacity to love the people in other countries and overseas and it it's impossible yeah on on my own um
0: it's hard enough with sanctifying grace but to just do it because you have an iphone and you can read news up to the minute all around the world it's not, that's not gonna real. do it, it yeah. that's,
2: not, that's not real you know which which i like it, it really does tie into i i need to return back to the little way with Therese. that's been a big provocation in prayer just like really authentically living out the little way um if if that's not the, the spiritual way of putting exactly what we're talking about, um I mean that that that's then all I'll it eat is. my hat. Then I will never I'm not gonna say that. I will make sure that you give me a hundred dollars.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think we did it again, guys. Solved it all.
2: Well, hey, let me ask Rob, can you say a little bit more about um why do you like that phrase from from Bad, Brad Pitt? cuz I like it too I really do. Um and I I have been relating it to I I know I told you about this um you know kind of in our in our own time but I had somebody recently at the parish really take advantage of generosity and like authentic Christian charity and it was a hard situation. We had to um use the full extent of the law to try and <laughs> uh, get oh, some. Yeah. I know exactly. Yeah. Mm. And, um. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's, uh, what you're saying is actually hitting home for me because I felt like I needed to protect the parish as a father, as a spiritual father. I but think I also I like... did...
1: no. oh, go ahead. No, no, no. That, I mean, that's a, I think I like that phrase. Um, because it's succinct but but says a lot it's very concise um and i think where it hits in me is i have a desire more and more uh to love the world and love people as they are in reality and i'm not very good at it i'm finding out um of I I would much rather uh, love the idea of someone or love what they could be, and I just um, that's that's not how the world works, and that's not very authentic on my part very often. Um, but we have incredible capacities as human beings to like delude ourselves and and not be able to look at maybe how harsh the reality is or frankly just how unlikable some people are <laughs> um, but it's i don't know there's just this kind of pull going on in me of like realizing um, whoa i actually haven't done this very well if i'm if i'm being honest but i would i would very much like to because i think it's rooted in um the incarnation i don't know how else to say it of um as you you kind of ponder these things in new ways and and can see them um just with more distinction and nuance and um the complexity of life and the world um <clears throat> it, it's it's funny because it's like the the church and the tradition that we have as Catholics. I've just found is like, it continues to hold, um, to be able to enter into this stuff. And it's actually me that has not like, just had the capacity to, um, to live at that level. So a a simple phrase like that of assume the worst about people, but look for the best. I, I actually think that's a really cool and free way to, to live. Um, especially in light of, you know, it's funny to, to think about and to say, but in light of like living, like the incarnation is, is real, um, of like, yeah, the, the incarnation of Jesus, um, did not like, there's no magic to it. It it didn't take away, um, the problems of the world. And it certainly didn't just magically, um, immediately take away the capacity for for sin and real evil in in the world um but but it's also real and we have to cling to it very very much yeah
2: yeah that's super well said man. yeah i (laughs) it's awesome dang it because in some ways uh like jesus came and and he uh, well, obviously he changed everything. He he changed all of time and all of space, and and saved saved every moment and everything. Um, but then in in another v- very real way as well, like he didn't change anything. Like things things are exactly the same, you know. It, but that's exactly where he comes in and enters into. And I think that's a frustrating. Maybe that's why I don't like the idea of let's go change the world. It's like Jesus, again, he changed everything, but then at the same time, um, like he didn't make everything magically perfect. Like you're saying, he actually came and entered into the most difficult moments. He didn't destroy them. Um, but by entering into them, he transformed them. And, you know that that's why the prosperity gospel it just doesn't work it, it just doesn't make any sense you know if you do this for god then he's going to he's going to do whatever for you like there's no promises that things are going to yeah that there's going to be positive outcomes f- for all the stuff that you do in relationship to jesus but at the same time everything that you do with christ is infinitely valuable and will yeah. change everything
1: I, I just think, man, it just, I just think it gives us the freedom to like people. Hmm. Yes. Like, sure, yeah. Like, cause it's, it's like, Hey, it's okay if you don't believe me, but maybe, and, and honestly, I give you credit for that because I don't know if I've been authentic with it before, but in a new way, I am addressing you as a fellow sinner, And if we have that ground to stand on, then like we can like like each other and and disagree um on a lot of stuff which i think is i think that's really really cool and i will
0: say that i think that there were some guys some professors in seminary who said these kind of things to us and we were like no (laughs) oh for sure you know what i mean like that sounds like gobbledygook um i'm going out there to announce the gospel and i have the truth so um i'm gonna go out there and there was a there was a good kind of confidence in that but i I do think after six plus years of uh being out here that i i very much sympathize with what you said i i would i would like to like people i would like to just (laughs) love them how they are actually you know instead of living for a a way I think the church should be or the way the world should be or the way people should be. And like, until then, I'm going to just live in this tension of like, I will be happy when or I I can settle down and and be a part of this. Be a part of this drama when you know, but like, feeling things deeply, loving people um, in the concrete. It doesn't mean you have to give up your convictions. You know, in any right. way, it, in, a, in a certain way, it makes your convictions more pro- profound. Um, it makes you have to test them, too, you know, that, that you give people the benefit of the doubt that you look for the best in everyone, regardless of what they think, regardless of even how they act. Um,
2: yeah, it it makes me think of something that, that I had with um, what, going through spiritual direction with Father Walter. Uh, he dropped a Mondo bomb on me. That's been very, very helpful and been praying with it. I, I preached on it a couple of weeks ago, but I was asking him, did I bring this up on the podcast about me throwing a pity party for myself? And, remember. and what Father Walter's response was. Okay. Well, I, I was telling him, Hey, how do I t- um, share what's going on in my heart with Jesus and talk to him authentically about like really how I'm feeling and, and what I think and you know, what I think about people and kind of how I'm judging the situation. And it seems like I have all of these different reasons to, to not rejoice, to not pray always, to not give thanks in all the circumstances. Um, I think I was preaching on Paul with second Theth- Thessalonians or something like that. And, and I said, well, how, how can I auth honestly talk to Jesus about what's going on, but not just sit there and, and like just throw a pity party for myself uh, and, and just kind of mope around like, Oh, everything's hard. I, my life is so tough. Jesus, where are you? What are you doing? And he said, anytime that you're talking to Jesus about the way that things should be rather than the way that things are, he's like, you know, that's, uh, that's not reality. <laughs> like this should I thought, well, should may be the only place where God doesn't live. <laughs> uh, and, and it's because it's, it's, it's not real. And, and actually, when we live constantly in the should, we're almost standing outside of reality and, and judging it. And, and so there's a lack of acceptance and there's a lack of, of participation in, in the real, which you know, ironically doesn't allow us to actually change it for the better. It doesn't allow God's grace to enter into it. And and so I now I come to prayer and I just, like, I have to stop myself when all the times when I say, hey, things are happening this way, but, man, God, don't you think they should be different? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, but instead actually accepting things of the way that they are.
0: This kid in our, our book club, we're reading Power and the Glory right now with uh, being a few of the students and meeting over Zoom. And uh, this kid said something really insightful the other day. He was talking to somebody whoo di whoo di whoo di
1: whoo di whoo di whoo This is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That's Jesus' Christmas present (laughs) to me.
2: I am so glad that you can also hear that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I hope it's recording us. just marveling. Connor, if you can hear us, our computers are just playing you on repeat, saying the word hootie. (laughs) And another thing. Hey, Merry Christmas, dudes. I got to go. Okay, bye guys. See up. Three dogs north are Juice, Seabisc, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary, it may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And here, down below,
2: I don't see there. Last second curves toward a horizontal flight.
1: All these birds just falling. Thank you, Doug. Ducks. Good girl.